the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. The Limits of Rebellion by Chris Rostale. In the last five years, on pure numbers terms, No UK-based movement has been as successful in mobilising people to take direct action as Extinction Rebellion. Many thousands of activists have been arrested and prosecuted for taking part in XR's various demonstrations, blockades, shutdowns. Most of these arrests welcomed and even encouraged as part of a wider strategy of forcing the government to take stronger action on climate change. However, XR has attracted a great deal of criticism, including much from the radical left. Various comrades have argued that, far from offering an alternative, XR's politics are ultimately wedded to the status quo and incapable of leading to the radical changes we so desperately need. I argue that this dispute turns ultimately on divergent conceptualizations of rebellious politics. Critics of XR aren't just disputing particular tactics or strategies, but more substantively the way its conception of rebellion is a fundamentally liberal one. This tension speaks to a deeper dimension through which liberalism is productive of and reliant on particular articulations of rebellion that are ultimately bourgeois and conservative. Radical, fugitive, wayward conceptions are at work, but are incommensurable with liberalism and foreclosed by the particular conceptual, organisational and strategic logics of Extinction Rebellion and its ilk. Rebellion is a concept at the heart of radical politics. It signals a conflict with authority, the refusal which makes possible a fracturing, a fracture which makes possible something else. There are, I think, three interconnected ways of cutting into the meaning of rebellion. First, it gives us images, figures, icons around which people coalesce, that motivate and mobilise, that signal politics in certain transgressive forms. Second, rebellion is a practice, the labour of refusal, disobedience, that challenges systems of power, a no that is also a yes, as Camus writes. Third, rebellion is a felt experience, a libidinal, aesthetic, exciting, romantic experience of transgression, a poetry of defiance and creation. A common assumption holds that rebellion is the terrain of left radical politics, but this is only half the picture. Across the political spectrum, we can find people adopting the images and discourses of rebellion. Rebellion is a way of speaking critically about power, about seeking legitimacy through one's opposition to a particular configuration of power. Rebellion is a way of inhabiting grievance and a way of taking on the mantle of a radical vision for change. Centrists, liberals, conservatives and fascists are all comfortable using the aesthetic and rhetorical power of rebellion so too advertisers and media empires. It's easy to write off these reactionary articulations of rebellion as merely cynical, but part of what we witness here is the intimate folding of rebellion into liberalism, 
rebellion pacified, commodified. Liberal rebellion is politically unpalatable, but coherent and powerful, and it shapes attempts at radical politics. As such, for those of us invested in wholesale political change, there are strong reasons to think very carefully about rebellion as a political modality that is increasingly saturated with conservative and reactionary politics. This essay tries to make sense of that political and conceptual folding, and to think about possible pathways for radical politics that don't get so captured. Part 1. Extinction Rebellion the most prominent users of the concept of rebellion have in recent years been Extinction Rebellion. The movement has made the subject positions and aesthetics of rebellion central to its strategies, encouraging its members, known as rebels, and the wider public to rebel for life. XR have assigned a specific strategic role to the rebel subject position. Drawing loosely on scholarship from Chenoweth and Stefan, they have based their strategy on the idea that if a critical mass of people, 3.5% of the population, take part in active rebellion, then movements tend to win. Rebellion leads to change. This is based on rather reductive understandings of scholarship which itself already flattens out the complexities of the processes through which political struggle can win. Nevertheless, XR's strategy has clearly been very successful at mobilising people to take action. In that respect, their discursive occupation of rebellion has worked. Furthermore, it's been influential on other emerging movements like Just Stop Oil. There are, however, some significant problems with this approach to thinking about rebellion, of which two are pertinent here. First, it amounts to a fetishization of transgression as the engine of political change. Much of XR's strategy has involved convincing as many people as possible to break the law, most often by occupying roads and blocking traffic. Their theory of change is based on a reductive causal logic and heroic assumptions about the route from breaking laws to achieving change. As many have noted, this has been carried out in a manner that has provided inadequate support to those taking part in rebellion with limited and misleading legal support and, at best, a naive account of the role of the police in suppressing effective dissent. Moreover, their strategy for grounding arrest and prosecution is inaccessible to many people, particularly those for whom exposure to arrest carries a heightened risk, including people of colour and people without citizenship. This fetishization of transgression is, then, based on a somewhat misguided understanding of political transformation, while reproducing forms of social exclusion that have meant the movement has emerged as predominantly white and middle class. The second problem with XR's approach is that it involves a fetishization of liberalism. Despite the movement's claim to be non-political, that avowed non-politicality has resolved into very liberal demands, citizens' juries and a government commitment to tell the truth about climate change. Furthermore, the strategic role of rebellion in XR's theory of change is explicitly liberal, civil disobedience mobilised to pressure the government into changing its course. That is a strategy that, for participants, only makes sense if you have faith that your disobedient actions will be recognised as political. Again, this is something that is far more easily taken for granted by citizens, by white people, by middle class people. 
In those twin fetishizations of transgression and liberalism, then, exile's strategy positions rebellion as an act of liberal citizenship. And like all forms of liberal citizenship, it is foundationary exclusionary. Part 2. Liberal Rebellion Exile's issues here reveal deeper tensions in the concept of rebellion. To make sense of this, it's important to appreciate the integral but ambiguous role rebellion plays within liberalism. On the one hand, the right to rebel against unjust authority is one of liberalism's founding myths. Carefully mediated accounts of revolt against feudal and imperial authority, with the French and American revolutions as the standard bearers, remain part of the imagining of liberalism as a modern and democratic politics. Liberal political theory has maintained the right and even duty to rebel against unjust authority, jumping through endless hoops to square that right with its accompanying obsessions with bourgeois property rights and colonial expansion. Insofar as it claims to be a political theory and mode of government that promotes some kind of freedom, liberalism depends on the possibility and sometimes justness of rebellion. In that context, the claim within liberal societies to be rebelling against unjust authority carries with it a certain force. At the same time, rebellion is also a problem for liberalism, a disruption to markets, a threat to the social order. Liberalism's heroic account of its own founding revolutions runs alongside anxious moves to downplay or discredit other, less virtuous rebellions. Thus, rebellion must be permitted but carefully managed. Much of the theoretical work on civil disobedience plays precisely such a role, seeking to determine the precise conditions and conduct whereby rebellion can be tolerated, and, naturally, what reprisals rebels should gladly accept. This, of course, presents rebels with a vastly reduced tactical repertoire. Recognising the tense but foundational role rebellion plays within liberalism allows us to make sense of other significant mobilisations of rebellion. One significant current in recent years has been the highly successful occupation of the discursive terrain of rebellion by right and far right wing political actors. A notable example comes from an infamous speech given by former UK Prime Minister Liz Truss to the Conservative Party Conference in 2014 in her then capacity as Minister for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Truss introduces her talk by cheekily warning the audience that she has much in common with then Labour Party leader Ed Miliband. Like Miliband, Truss has left-wing parents. She said, His father talked about Marx and Trotsky over the dinner table. My mother took me on protests. I went on marches. I made banners. I stayed at peace camps. For me, it wasn't ballet or My Little Pony. It was saving the planet and the CND. She continues, But while Ed stayed with the predictable left-wing establishment, I, conference, rebelled. I became a conservative. At once, trust trades on the aesthetical and rhetorical purchase of being a rebel, while situating left-wing politics, supposedly, as she acknowledges, rebellious politics, as in fact sites of hegemony against which free thinkers must rebel. While not quite using the same language again, Truss would continue to position herself as a rebellious figure throughout her rise to Prime Minister, 
for instance, situating herself in opposition to Treasury orthodoxy during both her leadership campaign and brief tenure. This move by right-wing politicians, intellectuals and activists has become commonplace. It allows them to cast the apparently liberatory promises of left-wing politics as in fact sites of coercive authority and oppression, while obscuring their own role in promoting and maintaining violent and hierarchical political systems. The obvious and most common response to such infuriating proclamations is to point out that Liz Truss is clearly not a rebellious figure, that Nigel Farage is not a free thinker, that Brendan O'Neill and Toby Young are not leading a resistance against coercive authority. That is, to refuse to permit this discursive, intellectual and libidinal occupation of the conceptual architecture of political liberation. To identify the glaring hypocrisies and cynical inversions required to position English nativism, white supremacy and free market ideology as subversive of, rather than integral to, established systems of power. While such responses are politically important, dismissing right-wing mobilizations of rebellion as entirely cynical risks overlooking how these awkward constructions reveal deeper tensions within the political register of rebellion. In 2007, the Financial Times launched a new advertising campaign titled We Live in Financial Times. The most famous image of this campaign featured the face of entrepreneur Richard Branson merged with that of Che Guevara. Branson is depicted in red, wearing a beret, staring boldly into the distance. A tagline reads, Business revolutionaries, past, present and future. The message is clear. Branson is a modern revolutionary, unconstrained by convention, boldly forging a new future precisely the kind of rebel figure needed to drive innovation and create new markets. Tapping into the effective investment of the FT's readership, this image reproduces the ideas of the entrepreneur as a Promethean figure, with the imagination and courage to identify the restrictions of one system and create a new one. This is an image of rebellion that is invested in masculinity, insofar as it's based on a form of individualism and autonomy unconstrained by the burdens of social reproduction. It invokes the colonial frontier, reproducing the rebel as an explorer, a charter of new territory, creator of new markets. Such figures are positioned as integral to the emergence and success of capitalism, and as such deserving of respect, valorization and tax incentives. In this respect, we can see that the rebel has power as a figure of bourgeois freedom. The fact that those who present themselves as rebels in this fashion are also invested in, amongst other things, white supremacist, patriarchal, transphobic structures of domination, is in this context, then, not an inconsistency. These are the structural hierarchies through which racial capitalism has been constructed. It makes sense that alt-right activists and Conservative Party members are enlivened by a mobilisation of rebellion that does not break with manifold interlocking forms of political domination. It doesn't need to. Their conception of rebellion is one intimately entangled with a supremacist politics. My point is not that we should not point out the grotesque hypocrisies at play in right-wing accounts of rebellion, but we should be careful about simply dismissing them as merely cynical. In important respects, they embody the bourgeois colonial spirit of liberalism more effectively than apparently left-wing projects that themselves align with a project of liberal rebellion.
Part 3. Insurgent Rebellion If rebellion is a mode of liberal citizenship and bourgeois freedom, what role is left for radical politics? There's a sort of sensible anarchist response to this problem. That is to suggest that there's too much focus on rebellion. The rebellion too easily results in these paradoxes, too easily becomes a masculinized discourse of heroes and martyrs, too easily becomes depoliticized or co-opted. From this perspective, while more radical endeavors do involve a tradition and aesthetics of rebellion, thinking of the Zapatistas, for example, this is better viewed as a byproduct. Only the content makes something radical. Instead, the answer comes, we should focus less on what we're rebelling against and more on what we can build in its place. Less edgy rebellion, more mutual aid. Prefigurative experiments. Presence rather than absence. I don't for a moment want to disregard the urgent importance of those features of radical politics. But it's just as crucial not to discard the subjective labour and aesthetic power that goes into and emerges from social and political actions that break the rules, that refuse to participate in or collaborate with an oppressive system. Radical politics needs rebellion, disobedience, naughtiness, transgression, even as it needs not to be reducible to these. Concepts emerging from black anarchism are especially pertinent here. Black anarchism begins from the experience of people who have never properly been included in the state, on whose marginalization, exploitation and exclusion the state is founded. From this position, they have theorized refusal, revolt and rebellion from the perspective of those who are a priori excluded from politics. A notable intervention here comes from Saidia Hartman's work on waywardness. In her book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Hartman charts the lives of young black women living in the northeastern United States at the turn of the 20th century, exploring their rebellious, wayward lives, largely forgotten by history, but nevertheless depicting creative, joyful, radical experiments in life in the face of a social-political system that had no interest in permitting their full humanity. She tells about young women in Harlem defying vagrancy laws and dancing, drinking, loving, fucking, in spite of a social system designed to criminalise such dangerous expressions of humanity. In looking at the anarchy of these women's lives, Hartman encounters those who practiced rebellion in ways that were inconceivable to, and so unnoticed by, dominant intellectual currents of the time. Those currents tended towards casting this rebellion as non-political, non-strategic, immature, a kind of cheap socialism that conflated idleness and luxury for resistance, struggle for survival and confused petty acts with insurrection. Anarchist and Marxist writers treated their rebellion as unimportant. But Hartman looks at dances, the erotic life of tower blocks, prison riots, and identifies here the struggle to be free, to insist on full humanity, to form communities of mutual aid. She writes, In the surreal utopian nonsense of it all, and at the heart of riot, was the anarchy of coloured girls. Treason en masse, tumult, gathering together, the mutual collaboration required to confront the prison authorities and the police, the willingness to lose oneself and become something greater. A chorus, swarm, ensemble, mutual aid society. In lieu of an explanation or an appeal, they shouted and screamed, 
How else were they to express the longing to be free? How else were they to make plain their refusal to be governed? It was the soundtrack to a history that hurt. That refusal to be governed, rather than appeal to government or desire to govern, is the foundation of radical rebellion. And those who know it best are those for whom that refusal is the condition of possibility for political action, for whom government means exclusion from the terrain of political and social life. It's notable that, from Hartman, we get a conceptual vocabulary that locates the radical possibility of rebellion in those communities and subject positions who are excluded from XR's politics amongst those whose rebellion is rooted in their status as non-political, precisely because their challenge is to the very foundation of politics. Hartman's rebellion takes as its point of departure the political vitality of those on whom marginalisation and exclusion liberalism depends. Hartman and others in her tradition push us to think about rebellion not as the strategic action of citizens shaping policy, but as a practice of possibility a recoding of politics and political subjectivity, interventions into the fabric of the human and refusals of dehumanization. There we get a way of thinking about rebellion that doesn't so easily resolve into liberal citizenship and that holds the possibility of generating strategies for resisting in a world predicated on the idea that certain people aren't supposed to survive. Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.